Christian education. On today's episode of Urban Puritano, I continue to discuss Christian education through the analytic tool of worldview thinking. Although worldview thinking has fallen on hard times, I still believe it is quite amenable to Reformed theology, and vice versa. Is it possible to see Christ in all of education? Stay tuned. All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you, Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bavink identifies a Trinitarian motif that can be adapted by Christian educators to locate a subject's relation to God and thus a view of how God's truth is the foundation for all truth. Any teacher can use his short synopsis of the faith and seek to discover the big scriptural Trinitarian God picture provided by our subjects. He summarized, quote, The essence of the Christian religion is this that the creation of the Father, devastated by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. End of quote. Let me suggest how this can provide for unity in truth and life in the educational process of dealing with the profound questions of human existence. There are other profound questions of human existence children may ask that I would like to bring to your attention. Seventh grade Sarah will ask, you know, like, where did language and like all that come from? Of course, we won't drop the ball and answer that language is the evolved grunts and growls of evolved primates that help us to survive in our environments. Language is the gift of God to man given to communicate among ourselves and most importantly, given to us to have a true knowledge of him. Therefore, a Christian teacher can appropriately start off the school year by telling Sarah and the rest of the students that learning how to express oneself well is a spiritual exercise. From a biblical standpoint, communication has a great dignity. The pertinent Trinitarian consideration is this. Even as the persons of the Trinity have spoken to each other from eternity and from the beginning to us through intelligible utterances, so are we. It pleased God to reveal His Word to us through a book 
with different genres, with poetry, prose, narrative, and all kinds of literary devices to communicate a knowledge of himself and his works. Respect for language, for the only adequate vehicle for intelligible thought, is to be oriented to a reverence for God, since language comes from Him. With this in mind, we guide and encourage our students to learn the parts of speech, to learn proper grammar, to learn the mechanics of language, to read between the lines, to express intellectual creativity, and to do all of this to display God's magnificence, to each other's edification, and for the advancement of His kingdom. Now this doesn't mean that all of our students, without exception, will become great literary masters because of our thoughtful efforts. Some will use their academic competencies in the areas of language for downright rebellious, anger-driven, anti-Christian purposes and be successful and influential at it. When it turns out to be the case, we shouldn't lose heart, but should humbly submit before God's sovereign will, knowing that surely the wrath of man shall praise God. Our confidence is placed in God alone because His wise, holy, and sovereign purposes cannot be thwarted. He is in control. It doesn't even mean that our students will always write a clear message to put on the refrigerator for that matter, but it does mean that they have been given a basis to appreciate the true worth of language. It is a worth only Christians invest in their education. Whatever the outcome, teachers have said that this, along with other areas of study, belongs to King Jesus, and we have resolved to do nothing less than to fight for his crown rights here and across the curriculum one day at a time, one lesson at a time, and one copy at a time. What about mathematics? Surely, mathematics can't be Christian, can it? Math has to be neutral. Consider the nature of mathematics for a moment. Take it slow. Bring your presuppositions forward, your Christian presuppositions. Ready? What follows isn't a demonstrative proof. I can't even hope to dig too deep. God hasn't given me the ability to do that. Perhaps he has given you the knowledge to dig deeper. If so, share your thoughts with others for his glory. I want to share a line of thought that highlights the applicability of God's word to the sphere of knowledge we call math. Rambunctious fourth grade Johnny is learning his multiplication tables. He will ask his teacher, Yo, Miss V, like where does math and numbers and all that come from anyways? Johnny has unwittingly asked his instructor a question concerning a profound problem of human existence. How should we explain mathematical truth? If you do your research, you'll encounter two general answers that flow from an approach that is antagonistic towards Christianity. One answer to the problem of where math comes from is that math is a function of brains. This answer depends on research, experiments, and theories about consciousness from which inferences are drawn to show that math is literally all in our heads. Let's call this the materialist math answer. The other answer to the problem of where math comes from is that math just is. This type of answer usually rejects most research and experiments as irrelevant and instead is more analytic about theories and about defining its terms, but fails to ground math on anything transcendent. 
Let's call this the mere metaphysical math answer. The former answer is presumptuously wrong, while the latter is humbly mistaken. Both approach the dilemma posed by math from non-Christian presuppositions. Any way you look at it, math is a shared reality. After all, Christians and non-Christians alike deposit and withdraw funds from their bank accounts. The difference is, as Reformed apologist Cornelius Van Til wryly stated, that while non-believers can count, they cannot account for counting. And the Christian worldview alone provides a rational ground for the properties that everybody attributes to math, knowingly or unknowingly. Christian teachers can deal with a materialist math answer in two ways. First, we must reject the basic materialist contention that mathematical thinking must be construed as activity in brains instead of the universal, non-physical activity in non-physical minds. Second, we may reveal the major embarrassment in such a materialist math answer. The materialist math answer will grant that mathematical truth is mental, but will define the term mind to mean our brains. Toes wiggle, tongues taste, glands secrete, and brains think mathematics. Any kind of thinking is reduced to chemical or physiological activity in our literal heads. Right away, though, the question arises as to how they can justify calling chemical, physical, or neurological activity either true or false. In defining mind to mean brain, materialists have denied themselves any possibility of a valid argument to justify an acceptance of their position. Why? Because physical motions in our heads cannot produce the rationality of a valid argument. We all agree that mathematical truth is mental, but only propositions which are non-material can be the objects of knowledge in minds which are also non-material. Physiological activity in a brain is just a bodily change. No matter how much we observe and experiment with the brain, we cannot derive propositions to construct an argument from that warrants our acceptance of the materialist math answer. Materialists, in redefining the term mind to mean brain, have done Christians a favor in demolishing their own position. To reduce any mathematical truth as elementary as 2 times 2 equals 4 to physical motions in the brain erects other insurmountable problems. 1. No one person can have the same mathematical thought twice since any thought we have is a fleeting event, distinct from every other, due to its physiological nature. 2. No two persons can share the same mathematical thought at all because the juices that flow in one brain are different than the juices that flow in another brain. 3. As a consequence of reducing mathematical truth in such a materialist fashion, memory and communication would both be impossible, since no one could repeat the same thought twice, nor could one receive another's identical thought. We may end our rejection of the materialist math answer by revealing its major embarrassment. Since Christians would clearly have to be committed to a view of mathematical truth that transcends the material world, and the materialist would object, we can simply reply that based on his own terms, quote, his denial of our position must be conceived to exist in his own mind only, and since it has not registered in any other mind, it does not occur to us to refute it.
Unquote. What then can we tell Johnny about math? We can tell him and the rest of the class that mathematical truth exists universally. It exists mentally and not materially, and that our minds are judged by math. In the classroom, teachers only declare whether students have reasoned their way through a problem correctly or not. We don't manufacture its truth. We aren't the basis of mathematics. Students sometimes even catch our mistakes at the board and let us know that we haven't reasoned our way through a problem either. I hate when that happens. It also is apparent that mathematical truths defy matter and space because such truths can be present in more than one place. We can also say that mathematical truths defy time because such truths never began nor will ever end. 2 times 2 equals 4 was true before any of us were conceived and will be true after we're long gone. This is just for starters. Because of the difficulties of the materialist math answer, some offer the mere metaphysical math answer. This answer recognizes certain mathematical properties and the inadequate account for them by materialists. Proponents of the mere metaphysical math answer rightly define the term mind to mean something non-physical so as to preserve a consistent basis for memory and communication. Remember that one form of communication is sharing a valid argument. These folks stand in awe of the order, beauty, and universality of math and like to talk of the mystery of it all. Why is mathematics out there? Of course, math neither begins nor ends. Of course, math defies matter, space, and time. But why? Given the qualities of mathematical truth already mentioned, what else does mathematical truth imply? We can also say that math is unchanging. We can also say that math is superior to any one of our minds, and to all human minds. Proponents of the mere metaphysical math answer engage in pedantic analytic discussions of terms and definitions, but are hard-pressed to account for mathematics' immutability or superiority to the human mind. They rightly humble themselves in light of their finiteness. They wrongly humble themselves before mathematics. They offer no basis for why math is just out there, but they do admit that the foundation of math cannot be something limited or temporary. The foundations of math have to resemble the properties of math. Rejecting the Bible as God's word from the start, proponents of the mere metaphysical math answer offer a solution incompatible with allegiance to the all-encompassing Lordship of Christ. As I see it, our Lord looks upon mathematics and declares, This is mine. He doesn't consider mathematical truth neutral. Christians can account for mathematics on the basis of the biblical triune depiction of God. If truth exists, including mathematical truth, its basis is God whose attributes are reflected in the properties of math. Is mathematical truth unchanging? God is unchanging. Is mathematical truth eternal? Only because God is. Does mathematical truth defy matter, space, and time? So does God because He is spirit. Is mathematical truth an object of thought in non-physical minds and yet superior to human minds? Well, God's mind is omniscient, knowing all truths. Do we stand in judgment of mathematical truth? 
not any more than we stand in judgment of God. Math is not just out there as a mysterious curiosity of the universe. Math pervades all of our lives because God pervades all of our lives. A Christian reflection upon math positions him to stand in all, not of it, but of the tri-personal God of scriptures. Since mathematical truth manifests certain properties consonant with the attributes of God as revealed in his word, the basis and ground for mathematical truth is that God himself is truth. Read Deuteronomy 32.4, John 14.6, John 16.13, a Trinitarian emphasis on God as truth. We can lead students through these considerations, and they will respond with examples of mathematical truths thought by God on their own. I've experienced it for the last years. When any of us learn math, we also get to know something of God's nature because mathematical truths are the eternal thoughts of God. Others may not believe so, but Christians have a basis for thinking so. Gordon Clark maintains, quote, insofar as man knows anything, he is in contact with God's mind. Since further, God's mind is God, we have a vision of God. Close quote. Sharing about how scratching the surface on the applicability of God's truth to profound issues of human existence, it seems to me is necessary if we want to develop in our students a biblical worldview. Teachers must bounce ideas off of each other. We must collaborate. We must hold each other accountable. In his Basic Concepts in Christian Pedagogy, Yan Waterink writes as follows, quote, It is the task of the elementary school to do everything in its power to have a comprehensive view of the revelation of God, developed in the child by the time he is approximately 12 to 14 years of age. Unquote. And we can only assist the child in doing this by correcting his impressions concerning the world and truth because the whole world is God's, and God's truth is all truth. God is not neutral, after all, about anything that sets itself up to be believed as truth. Schools have a non-neutral character. They are either promoting faith in God and his truth, as the Israelites were, or working against it, as the Canaanites were. But our task is compounded if the teacher herself or himself fails to realize the implications of a Christian worldview for education. That's why we must sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. No one knows it all. For far too long, God has been marked absent in education. This should not be so, especially in Christian schools. The presupposition that there is a God and that he has revealed himself in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament makes all the difference in the world. All educational experiences and curriculum, therefore, ought to be contextualized on this biblical basis. Reformed thought sees this as the beginning of wisdom for a genuinely Christian education. Thus, a genuine philosophy of Christian education echoing Reformed theology provides a strong framework within which all involved in the educational process can make choices about how to think and act biblically about how best to please the king's will, to flourish as humans, subdue the earth, and to bring every thought captive 
to the obedience of Christ in whatever they study and do. It establishes that God's truth is all truth and should be imparted God's way. A biblical philosophy of Christian education, echoing Reformed theology, demands that precept and practice harmonize to the glory of God and the good of the students. In so doing, the benefits will be palpable to the community, the church, and the world. The fortunes of a Christian worldview are many. Christian education challenges both students and teachers to recognize Christ's lordship and significance in every realm of knowledge. Reformed thinkers, our fellow Christians of the past and present, spur us on to that end to help us see the applicability of God's word to God's world. It is a beautiful portrait with layer upon layer of master strokes designed to reflect the light of God's truth and his glory. As we ponder the tough questions, we come to appreciate and take joy in the rational basis we have for the unity between truth and life. We are ultimately inviting students to do the same, clearing the obstacles as much as possible that obscure their sight from looking to God alone for salvation to joyfully take up the tools of their education, to paint their own life's portrait, as it were, and live out their different callings in the context of faith and allegiance to Jesus alone. As educators, we gratefully and humbly carry out our tasks, sometimes crying and sometimes laughing, sometimes half-heartedly and sometimes with caffeinated enthusiasm, sometimes falling short and sometimes being disappointed and forgiving ourselves and others while seeking forgiveness from our King, knowing that if our great God is for us, who can be against us? The Christian worldview, as Reformed thought envisions it, is the only framework that provides coherent answers to the profound questions of human existence. Questions that are introduced to children at a very young age and are continually revisited and addressed contrary to the Lord of Truth throughout their education. A distinctly Christian education is the only context offering neither a candy-coated despair nor a candy-coated delusion. Christian teachers only need to subjugate their own God-limiting education by drawing from the arsenal of rational scriptural considerations to promote God's kingdom through education to our students. Many people will disagree with our efforts. Many will oppose our endeavors. But no matter the opposition or the limitation, the important thing is to have our God's approving eye upon the service we render to Him. Loving God with all our minds means we recognize that His Lordship over all extends to things visible and invisible. That is the most satisfying thing for Christian educators. For in so doing, we are satisfied by God Himself while savoring His grace and granting us the privilege to enjoy unity in all of truth for all of life. We have the unique opportunity to give our students a glimpse of the applicability of the triune God's word to his world in the subjects they study. Who else can say that? Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers.